Tonight we're going to explore some about the teaching of the five spiritual faculties. What are they? Faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And I find that they're equally applicable in cultivating in daily life practice as well as the more subtle practice of these faculties that we might experience on retreat. And I like to look at them from both angles. So we'll do a little bit of that tonight as well. I'll start with an image for these five faculties. And it's an image from the Buddha. And this particular image is described by Ayakema. And Ayakema was the first Western woman to become fully ordained as a bhikkhuni, fully ordained nun. So she says... The Buddha compared the five spiritual faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, to a team of horses with one lead horse and two pairs of horses that are pulling a wagon. The lead horse can go as fast or as slow as it likes, and the others have to fall into step with it. So you might ask, who's the lead horse? Mindfulness. She says, the pairs have to be in balance with each other. Otherwise, if one goes faster than the other, the wagon will topple. So you might ask, what are the pairs? The pairs are faith and wisdom and energy and concentration. So for those of us that are visually oriented, you can imagine the cart of self being pulled by these two teams of horses, faith and wisdom, energy and concentration, and mindfulness is in the lead because without the development of mindfulness, none of the rest of them can come to full maturity. Ayakema continues, the Buddha talked about five spiritual faculties which turn into spiritual powers if we cultivate and develop them. We all have these qualities within, and developing means making them powerful, with which then they become factors of awakening. As long as they are only faculties, they're only potentials for enlightenment. So what we're talking about is our potential for enlightenment or awakening and how to manifest that potential in small and in large ways. It's, it's quite an invitation, actually. If the image of the horses doesn't quite work for you to remember or have a sense of these faculties, I'll give you a second image. And this image is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. And Bhikkhu Bodhi is a monastic, one of the foremost scholars of our time. And um, although people tend to think of him as a great intellectual, I find him quite um, warm and soft and kind of pliable in his being. You know, there's just nothing rigid about him. He says... The faculties of faith and wisdom form one pair, aiming at balancing the capacities for devotion and comprehension. The faculties of energy and concentration form a second pair, aimed at balancing the capacities for active exertion and calm recollection. Above the complementary pairs stands the faculty of mindfulness, which protects the mind from extremes and ensures that the members of each pair hold one another in a mutually restraining, mutually enriching tension. Okay, so now we've got a pyramid, and on the top is mindfulness, 
and then we've got energy and concentration, and we've got faith and wisdom. It's the pyramid version. So we'll go through each of these, explore it a little bit. We'll talk about language for each of them, some examples, ways to work with them, and also how they manifest as a power or as a strength in our practice. We'll start with faith. A simple daily life way of looking at this quality might be trustful confidence in higher values. Trustful confidence in higher values. So faith, or in the old language, palisada. We have to talk about language first because I know in a group as large as this, even the amount of times that I've said the word faith in the course of the last five minutes has you know, set somebody's buttons off because of a religion of origin, because of some past history or understanding with what that word means. Um, and I really want to acknowledge that and play with the language a little bit because um, it's always painful when we lose our access to these beautiful qualities because there's been painful situations in the past and the very word just shuts us down. So please make the language your own always in this practice. So helpful. So other words for faith might be trust or confidence. Equally relevant. So instead of just talking about faith, uh, maybe I'll pose the question to the community for a moment of recollection. What inspires our trust? What inspires our confidence? What inspires our faith? Might be simple, small things. Maybe a few people be bold enough to just call out a few things that inspire your trust and confidence. Living a life. Genuineness. Consistency, yeah. Evidence. Evidence. Did you have one? Support from others. Support from others, yeah. Transparency. Mm-hmm. Generosity. Generosity, yeah. Yeah, what inspires our trust and our confidence in being a human being, living a life? And in this case, for those of us here on the spiritual path, whatever yours feels like to you. So, of course, the Buddha did not encourage blind faith in any way, shape, or form. Uh, What he was interested in is what's called verified faith. And so sometimes we show up in a community like this and, you know, like the five people who are new tonight, for example, or those of you that it's your first year in insight meditation practice, and you think, oh, well, what is this all about? And, and who, you know, who's up front talking every week and checking in with other people who've maybe been doing this longer? Um, you know, we kind of take some trust on face value. And at some point, sometimes we have to borrow faith. So we'll borrow trust in the fact that maybe there's something helpful in this practice from somebody else. But it doesn't stop there. 
really that borrowing faith is just saying, oh, there's somebody that looks like they have something that I would like to have, and so maybe I'll go along with them for a while. But as we continue doing the meditation practice and living these teachings in our life, what those of us who've been around a while know is that we develop trust and confidence in our own direct experience. That's verified faith. Then we don't need to turn to somebody else and say, am I okay? Is my practice okay? We know that it's good enough. You know, we know that we're going to keep going. And this is from Ayakema again. Faith as a quality in the heart has such great value because it is connected with love. We can only have faith in something or someone we love. So then you can feel that heart, that devotion. Oh, yeah. I could allow myself to melt into something larger than myself. That's another way of talking about trust or faith. But in talking about faith, of course, we also have to talk about doubt because doubt is the so-called hindrance to developing this trust and confidence. And if we see it clearly and work with it skillfully, then it's actually a doorway to developing trust and confidence. You know, it need not be a problem. So I couldn't resist bringing James's voice in, given that he's not here. He has this lovely passage on working with doubt. He says, practice is difficult without faith. The doubting mind feels very alone, disconnected, and despairing. The voice of doubt says this, everyone else is meditating the right way. I don't know what I'm doing. This is just a waste of time. I'll never be a good meditator. I'm sure no one here has ever had those thoughts, right? And James continues, I remember one early retreat when thoughts like those kept arising in my mind. My doubts about myself and the practice were so overwhelming that I was ready to give up and leave. As with all states of mind, the wave of doubt eventually passed. That's key. Seeing the impermanence of the mind state and the subsequent vigor that replaced it gave me the courage to continue. The courage to continue. The heart to continue. And this is from Edward Kanza. He's one of the great scholars and translators of the last century. He said, as a virtue, faith is strengthened and built up by self-discipline. It is not strengthened and built up by discussing opinions. Okay. You want me to say it one more time? Yeah. As a virtue, faith is strengthened and built up by self-discipline and not by discussing opinions. So it's not about me and mine and what's right. Again, this term self-discipline might be much more about keeping going. So I'll give you a modern day example of keeping going. Uh, this was something that just came up for me recently and, and I've been using it to buoy uh, trust and confidence in the path. It brings me a lot of joy whenever I think about it. So the story is this. For the last 10 years, every New Year's Eve, I have um, led a retreat for teenagers. And f between 35 and 50 teenagers show up every year and do half an hour periods in silence of sitting and walking meditation. Yes, they do. Uh -huh. Not lying. 
And, and in fact, actually we have a, a parent of a couple of those teens here um, tonight. And even better, we've got a couple of those teens that graduated from teen retreat and are now young adults here tonight. So uh, I kid you not. There is a staff of 12 people who come and volunteer their time every single year to support these youth in their process of awakening. It's so inspiring to me. Volunteer their time. You know, that's generosity, really. Over New Year's. Taking time off from work. So there was a new staff on Teen Retreat this year, and he was from the Dharma Punks community. And as a kind of um, subculture of... uh, one of many of our Dharma communities, the, the Dharma punks, uh, one of their signature kind of pieces is they often have Dharma tattoos. You know, So you see somebody with like a Buddha on their arm or some sort of phrase or something. This particular staff who came on the retreat had two beautifully done cursive tattoos on each of the palms of his hands, which is why it caught my attention. I had tattoos on the palms of your hands? Wow, what would they say? Here's what they said. The fir- the, this palm said, I love you. And the second palm said, keep going. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. And I asked him about it. I said, how did you ever come up with that? He said, oh, I was on a retreat. And uh, my teacher just said it randomly in the middle of a Dharma talk. And I knew that it was exactly what I needed to you know, continue with my practice and remind me why I'm doing this. The interesting thing is I do not have tattoos on my palms, I love you, keep going, and yet there have been moments since this teen retreat, which just happened less than two months ago, that I look down at my hands and I feel my hands and I just imagine, I love you, keep going. There's an antidote for doubt. When faith or trust or confidence becomes a power the quality of doubt is actually um, uprooted. It's actually transformed so that it doesn't arise anymore. And that's quite peaceful. It's quite simple. It's quite freeing to not be plagued by doubts. It doesn't mean that there isn't discernment. It doesn't mean that we don't have to um, doubt something occasionally. Like, for example... Maybe we have been in um, a spiritual community where the organization itself or the teacher was unskillful. It doesn't mean that we just take it on blind faith. What it means is that we can actually bring discernment into the foreground, take a look at it, respond skillfully, because we have a lot of energy available that used to be locked up in doubt. When it's released, whether for a short period or long period, we have a lot more available to bring to the situations of our lives. And one of the manifestations of faith becoming a power is that we notice the qualities of the awakened states of heart coming out more and more. What are they? Basic friendliness, compassion towards suffering, celebrating joy when things are joyful, and the incredible balance of mind and heart that is this equanimity. And what we know is that when we look at masters from every spiritual tradition, these are the things that shine forth. And it's why we like to be around them. 
Think of His Holiness the Dalai Lama in this moment. That simple, famous phrase that he uses, my religion is kindness. There's so much awakening in beings like His Holiness. But it's not that they're lording it over us with with some sort of, I'm so profound. What we get is kindness, caring, joy, and balance that doesn't get lost. That's what happens when faith becomes a power. Not just for the masters, but for us. So we have faith or trust, and then we have energy. Simple way of talking about energy might be vigorous effort towards the wholesome or vigorous effort towards the helpful. In the Pali, it's the word virya. We'll talk about the language a little more. We could say energy, we could say vigor, effort, perseverance, or even enthusiasm. All words for energy. And energy is the mental factor actually behind wise effort. So we need to talk about wise effort a little bit. What is it? Well, those of us who have been around for a while know that it's one of the, um, the spokes of the wheel of the Eightfold Path. So it's one of the tools that we have to live a life of awakening. And it's got four basic components. And the four are these. Cultivating the wholesome. Nurturing the wholesome when it's there. Transforming what is unwholesome or unhelpful. And what I call preventative medicine. Which means, oh, I know that when I say this, it never turns out in a way that's helpful. So I'm going to apply a preventative medicine in advance so that I don't have to say that thing that always leads to a disconnect with that person that I love, for example. Talk about how to practice with these a little bit. One of the simplest ways to practice with wise effort is intention. Because if our intention is to cultivate what's helpful and to transform and release what isn't helpful, um, we're already way ahead, way ahead. So I was reflecting on how many of us actually set intentions as part of our practice when we wake up. You know, 24 hours ahead of us, how are we going to meet it? How are we going to meet it? Um, So I just thought I would put it out again to the community so that we could hear your voices. Um, What are some intentions that when you wake up in the morning or if you do morning meditation practice that you want to bring? in terms of cultivating helpful qualities and maybe transforming unhelpful qualities. Not reacting with anger. anger. Yes, thank you for having that intention. Patience, yeah. Kindness Kindness to yourself. Gratitude, gratitude. Internal calm, yeah. Yeah, to be happy. It's not cheating to intend to be happy, that's for sure. 
How many of us have um, setting intentions for these qualities that we might want to bring out or qualities that are a little outdated that we want to transform? How many of us have this as part of our practice? I'm just curious. Yes, maybe half of us. Mm -hmm. So in terms of cultivating what's, what's helpful, uh, one simple practice that I do, it's a mindfulness practice, and I just call it be on, on the lookout for. Be on the lookout for patience. Be on the lookout for gratitude. Be on the lookout for anger transforming. You know, that would be a way of working with the unwholesome. And I've just always kind of got my eye out tracking. Because it's so easy to walk through the world seeing the problems. And we all, to a certain extent, in cycles, are addicted to struggle. So what if we were on the lookout for the helpful? And then when we see it and it's there, what if we, another practice that I do, I call it drink it in. What if we had a moment of internal calm and we just said, oh, this is important. I'm going to mark it with mindfulness and I'm going to take a few breaths. Nobody needs to know that we're doing it. It's stealth dharma. Just take a few breaths, yeah, drink it into the body and move forward. Because we're marking it. If you think about what we do when there's a so-called problem, internally or externally, what we do is we ruminate about it, we think about it a lot, we give it a lot of fuel. So I'm always looking for ways to give fuel to the wholesome, to balance it out. In terms of working with the unwholesome, a couple of practices. One is working with the unwholesome that hasn't arisen yet. So let's say we have a habit of impatience. And we know that we're about to go into a meeting where impatience is about 99% likely to arise. This practice actually came out of the Metta retreat this year at Spirit Rock. And somebody that, that I was working with developed this for herself and uh, we were in a small group when she shared it and it really resonated for everybody so I asked her if it was okay if I shared it more widely and of course she said yes and what she called it was you know I'm taking on the practice of forgiving myself in advance very powerful what that acknowledges is that we're human that we're never going to get it right but that it doesn't mean we have to give up and spiral down into that doubt, now we're back into the faith-doubt dynamic, and lose all of our energy and capacity to awaken. May we forgive ourselves in advance. May we forgive the first noble truth in advance. The first noble truth being that um, being a human being, living a life includes that it's painful and that there's, you know, struggle and hardship. Can we forgive that in advance? so that it's not that I did something wrong and the world is wrong when it is how it is. Uh, Another mindfulness way of working with is a simple acronym. I like acronyms because they're easy to remember in a daily life. This one comes from the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction School. It's called STOP. So S-T-O-P. It stands for stop, take a breath, Observe, proceed. So let's say we're in a moment of uh, tremendous fear. 
And we know that out of that fear, we're going to stick our head into the turtle shell and not connect. And then there's, you know, going to be fallout from that. And we see that it's happening. Go, ah, stop, take a breath, observe what's happening in the body. Oh, shaking, tight, want to run away, screaming. Okay, take that in. It is how it is. Maybe tremendous compassion for that fear. And then proceed from that. Because when we're intimate with the qualities that feel not helpful, then we have the option to proceed in a way that's not habituated. So we stop, take a breath, observe, proceed. When energy becomes a power, uh, these four qualities of wise effort, again, cultivating the wholesome, nurturing the wholesome, abandoning the unwholesome, and preventative medicine for the unwholesome that will arise later. They become quite mature and quite developed. And there's an ease and a flexibility with being able to work with them, see them, that is a strength or a power. We have faith, energy, mindfulness, is next, attentive awareness, or one working definition for mindfulness is present moment intention-driven non-judgmental attention. Is that enough of a mouthful for you? Present moment intention-driven non-judgmental attention. Fortunately, we all know what mindfulness means. Even if you're brand new in this practice, mindfulness is not meditation-driven Mindfulness is meditation cultivated. We've all been mindful a thousand times, 10,000 times in our lives. So this is a quote from uh, Edward Kanza again, and it refers back to a text, a commentary, that's called the Vasudhi Maga, or the Path of Purification. He says, mindfulness should be strong everywhere. For it protects the mind from excitedness into which it might fall, since faith, vigor, and wisdom might excite us, and from indolence, which it might fall because concentration flavors indolence. Therefore, mindfulness is desirable everywhere, like a seasoning of salt in all sauces, like the prime minister in all state functions. Hence it is said, the Buddha has declared mindfulness to be useful everywhere, for the mind finds refuge in mindfulness, and mindfulness is its protector. Without mindfulness, there can be no exertion or restraint in the mind. So the simple version of that quote is that mindfulness is useful everywhere. And I love this idea of mindfulness as a protector. Mindfulness is an ally. Why? Because when we're present moment based, we can respond with more spontaneity, more embodiment, more authenticity. It's a protector against confusion, fear, anger. It's a protection. And it's not a protection to get rid of those things. It can be intimate with those things. When mindfulness becomes a power, it manifests as a, a strength or a resiliency or a continuity of the four foundations of mindfulness. 
So what are the four foundations of mindfulness? Mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feeling tone, that everything has a, a fundamental quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, is number two. Mindfulness of mental states is number three. Mindfulness of dhammas is number four. If you're not familiar with this list, um, please don't be too concerned. Uh, but I mention it because some of you are. And the bottom line is, four foundations means that we're increasing our capacity to be present moment available in all activities. In all activities. And in all mental states. Nothing left out. Oh, I can't be mindful if I'm so upset. Why? When it becomes a power, we can be mindful when upset. So, faith, energy, mindfulness, and concentration. The Pali word for concentration is samadhi. Simple way of talking about it might be focused attention, extremely focused attention. And interestingly, in Buddhist psychology, concentration occurs twice. And the first time it occurs is concentration as a factor essential to all thought. What does that mean? It means if you think you don't have concentration, sorry to tell you, you're wrong. Because if you can think, you have concentration. Now, this is good news. Because some of us really get tied up in knots of, oh, I sit down and meditate, all I do is think, I have no concentration. The doubt kicks up, we get up and leave, and that's the end of it. Please don't do that to yourself. We all have concentration quality available. And it can be trained. And it can deepen. And it can become a tremendous power of mind. So the first factor is a factor essential to all thought. And the second way that concentration occurs in Buddhist psychology is as a special or rather rare virtue. Okay. That's the concentration that's trained, that's nurtured, that's cultivated. Again, from Edward Kanza, in its simplest form, concentration is the narrowing of the field of attention in a manner and for a time determined by the will. The mind is made one-pointed, does not waver, does not scatter itself, and it becomes steady like the flame of a lamp in the absence of wind. So there is a huge continuum of concentration available. And there's a huge range of kind of natural ability in us to be able to concentrate or not, and ability to train. So a lot of times people say, oh, I'm doing concentration practice. Or a teacher will say, oh, you know, you should do concentration practice. It's one of many trainings. It's very helpful um, for the reasons that Edward uh, Kanza mentioned. But I really want to mention that when we talk about the word concentration, it doesn't mean the same thing. And in fact, even the different masters that teach concentration, it doesn't mean the same thing to them. So living up in Nevada City these days, an hour from Lake Tahoe, um, a lot of people ski up there. And it's almost as if somebody, you talk to 50 people and they all say, oh, I ski. But one of them has only skied once and they were really excited about it and so now they say, I ski. And one of them actually is training for the Olympics. 
But what they say is, I'm a skier. It's like that with concentration. We're talking about a huge range, and they're all welcome. So sometimes we fall into a more collective attention. Sometimes we train for more collective attention. And we don't just do it in meditation. It's interesting, again, on this meta retreat at Spirit Rock, I, I happen to be checking in with a number of athletes. And the amount of concentration that they'd already trained in through their sport was totally applicable to meditation. I was thinking about daily life practice, and I was thinking about email and office work, just as a very concrete daily life example. So when I open my email account, and there's 50 new emails, I would call the concentration that needs to happen in order to attend to all those 50 topics momentary concentration. The attention is absorbed in this email on this topic. Mountain Stream Meditation Center is developing their volunteer program, so there's an email about that. Totally focused on that topic. Not thinking about what's for lunch or, oh, um, the finances of Mountain Stream. Thinking about volunteer program. Next email. Fundraising committee for Mountain Stream Meditation Center. Okay, and now we're developing our summer benefit. Totally focused on that. Momentary concentration. One event at a time. And it's a really important quality that we need in this day and age because things are moving faster and faster and it's getting more and more complex. How do we focus? Then there's more of absorption concentration where the mind is so pliable that in meditation it might look like, oh, there's a thought about to rise, but the attention is so concentrated and absorbed and intimate with the breath that before the thought even flickers into existence, it's almost as if the gaze shifts, sees it's about to come, and it already disappeared. So how does that manifest in daily life? Because I think it does. And I was thinking about when I sit down with people, and they're telling me their story. I'm not thinking about what's for lunch. I'm totally absorbed in the direct interpersonal experience of you know, their body language, the somatic resonance between us, what they're saying, you know, the whole thing. There's nothing else. There's just that. And we have that when we're close with people, you know, in moments. When concentration becomes a power, the qualities that we get to benefit from are qualities like an ability to aim the attention on anything that we like and sustain it all the way through the process. There's a tremendous joy available in body and mind. And there's the simplicity of single-pointedness. I mean, I know complication and drama can be interesting, but sometimes it's so so peaceful, such a relief to just have the simplicity of single-pointedness. And it's a power that we can cultivate, a strength, uh, a resiliency, actually, of body and mind. We're on to the fifth. Faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So intelligent understanding might be the simplest way of talking about wisdom, especially in living a life. Intelligent understanding. In the Pali, this word panya. 
But in the end, what the Buddha was pointing to was wisdom based on direct experience, not wisdom being somebody knowing something. What's our direct experience and what does it teach us about being a human being living a life? When wisdom becomes a power, there's two kind of pieces that become very developed. One is the direct experience of the Four Noble Truths. So what are the Four Noble Truths? This first teaching that the Buddha gave after he became fully enlightened. I'd love to reflect on the fact he could have taught anything. Think about when you have a great insight and you want to share with a friend, you could talk about it 200 different ways. And I'm sure he could have talked about it much more than that. But this is what he said. First he said, my friends, there are these two extremes that ought to be avoided by one who's gone forth on the spiritual path. What two? Extreme of overindulgence, an extreme of self-denial. And then he talked about the four truths. I'm going to say them in the simplest way possible. I'm interested in developing kind of single sentences for each of these truths so that they're just available while we're living a life. So I have a new sentence for the first truth. First noble truth, it's not easy being a human being living a life. Right? Yeah. It's not easy being a human being living a life. Second noble truth, there's a cause or a reason that it's not easy. Biggest reason is we struggle. Third noble truth, peace is possible. Same life. Peace is possible. Same world. Fourth noble truth, there's a set of tools that we can cultivate this path of peace. And they include basic integrity, meditation training, and wisdom cultivation. So when those become fully developed in our direct experience, we're just living them moment by moment. What strength is that? We're clear. We're not getting caught up in things in the complexity of the world. And we're engaging the complexity of the world. We're not avoiding anything. But the amount of skillfulness we can bring to that is large. And then the second piece when wisdom becomes a power is the direct experience of yet another list. You get list indigestion this evening. And that list is called the three characteristics. It's three insights. Again, I'm going to make them very, very simple so that we can continue living them in our lives. Three insights. Everything changes, number one. Number two, when we hold on, it hurts. Number three, it's not as personal as we thought. Everything's changing when we hold on, it hurts. It's not as personal as we thought. So I'll just share a story here as we're coming to the end of this list. And the story is on a content level, but what I'm more interested in with the story is actually the process level because I think this is how all of these qualities mature in us on a process level. So it has to do with the first insight of the three characteristics or everything changes. First, we have to learn that there might be something worth looking at. So in this case, early in my practice, I heard about this teaching and I thought, oh, Everything changes. Yeah, that might be a worthwhile thing to investigate. I, I think it's true and you know, be a good thing to practice with and look for in my life. 
I had to know that there was something there to even work with. I had to learn the term in Pali, anicca, just means impermanence. Yeah. So there's some learning going on, some language that I needed to take in. That's part of the process of maturation or development. Then I reflected on it and started looking for it in my life. And the story I remember in particular was during that period of years, I was the teacher for the family program at Spirit Rock. And there was a class that happened every Monday night in conjunction with Jack Cornfield's Monday night class. It was for kids, ages 5 to 12. They came in off the street, you know, with, with everything that they came in with. And we would do short meditations with them, and we'd pass the talking stick, and everyone would speak their truth and, and listen to each other. And then we'd go outside and run around and play meta tag, which is freeze tag, except to unfreeze somebody, you send them love and kindness. And, you know, then we'd have a snack. <laughs> so I brought this topic of everything changes to them, thinking, oh, I'm going to bring something really profound tonight to these kids. Yeah. I remember this so clearly. And I brought it in and we're passing, I, I did a little teaching, just short, simple, practical, passed around the talking piece. And sure enough, every kid said, oh yeah, I know, everything changes. My tooth fell out. You know, it's like, all right, they've got it. You know, and then next kid got, gets the stick. Oh yeah, everything changes. You know, my, my dog died two weeks ago and, and you know, and the tears and everything. I lost my dog. You know, oh yeah, everything changes. And then the next kid gets a stick and says something like, yeah, everything changes. I have a new teacher this year. And I like her. Okay, well, so I started reflecting on this. I thought, well, wait a second. These kids are either completely enlightened or there must be something more to this teaching of everything changes. Or, you know, maybe the answer is both. Um, No, I don't want to idealize our kids. Our kids have a lot of wisdom because they're not habituated. It hasn't built up but they're not necessarily enlightened. Um, so then I started thinking about that. And how, okay, there must, there must be deeper layers to this. And I think it was the second long retreat that I sat at Spirit Rock. So long retreat, meaning a couple months. And at the end of this retreat, maybe two or three days before the end, uh, I was sitting up late at night in the meditation hall. And in the front of the meditation hall, there are two candles that usually remain lit until the last person leaves, or at least they did at that time. And I was watching the candles. And I'd been watching them for two months, every night, and it was beautiful. Kind of like here. And all of a sudden, the flickering of those candles, just like, there was no separation anymore. There's just no separation anymore. And everything started to flicker like the candles. Just everything. Everything, My heart started to flicker like the candles. My whole body and sensation started to flicker like the candles. And, you know, it's like even the few thoughts were flickering like the candles. And everything I looked at was just like appearing and disappearing so fast I couldn't even really hold on to anything. And I just burst into tears. I just burst into tears. I didn't even know if I was happy or sad. It was just completely overwhelming to see the depth of how much everything changes. I'm I'm sure I'm not the only one that's experienced this. And I still remember... um, So on a process level, there's these penetrating direct experiences. 
It's a great cultivation of wisdom. It's a tremendous power. You can never go back from an insight like that. You might not see it, experience it that way all the time, but you know, you know. Um, And we've all got our own version of this. Yours might not be this, yours is something else. As I started to digest that and integrate that a little while later, you know, this kind of phrase came to me that stayed with me all these years ever since. And what it was was, everything is changing. It's all slipping through my fingers even as I write these words, you know, even as I say these words. It's already gone. Just in the pause between me saying the words and these words, everything has already totally changed. And so then we digest it and integrate it and learn to live from it. And that's how wisdom grows as a power. I'm just using one simple example. There's so many ways for direct experience of wisdom to grow as a strength in our practice, in our hearts, in our lives. And it just keeps growing, of course, and growing. This is a quote by Edward Kanza from the Prajnaparamita, The Perfection of Wisdom. It's about the third insight of the three characteristics, not taking it so personally. It's not all about me. Thus, in happiness and suffering, in praise and blame, in fame and disrepute, in life or death, the practitioner is unchanged, neither elated nor cast down. And so with friend or foe, with what is pleasant or unpleasant, with holy or unholy practitioners, with noises or music, with forms that are dear or undear, the practitioner remains the same, unchanged, neither elated nor cast down, neither gratified nor thwarted. And why? Because the practitioner sees all dhammas, all things, as empty of marks of their own, without true reality, incomplete, and uncreated. Uncreated. There's a pause when our thinking, conceptual, I know something mind Let's go. That's it. That's large enough to hold everything. You don't need to understand the quote. It's just the mind stops and goes, what? And then it starts making something, making meaning, but the pause, the pause. I'll end with one more quote from Ayakema. To become a master of all these aspects, These aspects, meaning the five spiritual faculties, wisdom, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. To become a master of all these aspects is an ideal, but to practice them is a necessity. And since all of us have these faculties within already, there is every reason to cultivate them. One finds oneself a more harmonious and balanced person with less difficulties, 
capable of helping others. To develop these five faculties should be a primary object in one's life. The balancing of them needs to be seen as connecting heart with mind. Connecting heart with mind. So that's what I have to offer for our reflection this evening. And I thank you for the kindness of, of your attention. Uh, it's really settled in here right now. You can take that in whether you personally feel settled or not. You know, We practice together so that uh, we have a field to pull from that's larger than ourselves. So I was thinking that perhaps we might take a community poll because for each of us, perhaps one or two of these qualities already is somewhat stronger than the others. And again, we tend to be habituated towards looking at what's lacking. So on one hand, we could acknowledge and celebrate what already has resiliency and strength in comparison to maybe some of the others. And simultaneously, we can look around as people weigh in with their hands raised and see, oh, like, for example, um, you know, maybe you think you don't have good concentration, but then you notice, oh, there's all these people around you that just raise their hands. Well, you know, why not borrow their potential? <laughs> why not? Are we really solid separate? I'll leave that for us to individually explore. Are we really solid separate? Like the people around us that we practice with don't impact us, other than the fact that they showed up? It's an interesting thing to kind of inquire about. So you could choose one, you can choose two, but do look around and, and just see what's here. So this quality of faith or trust feels somewhat strong in you, somewhat resilient in you. Show of hands. Yeah, what a beautiful thing. We've got about a third of our community that is carrying the mantle of trust. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, thank you for that expression of your practice. What about energy in terms of the mental factor of cultivating the wholesome and transforming the unwholesome? Show of hands. Okay. Yeah, yeah, about a quarter of us. About a quarter of us. Yes, you can vote more than once. Because, you know, it's our hearts, it's our minds. It's not going to work in a linear way. What about mindfulness? How many people feel like mindfulness has been cultivated to a more extent? Yeah, yeah. Maybe third, maybe half of us. Concentration. Oh, good. Oh, good. Probably about 20% of us raised our hands. Now, the, the last one is, is tricky. We're not identifying as a wise person. How about wisdom? So you don't have to be a wise person, just wisdom is, you know, is resilient, is strong. Yeah, 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 about a quarter of us. We need these. We need these qualities. As I came, I said, they're already here. We can cultivate them further. Um, 
The world needs them. The world needs them. So I thank you very much for your practice this evening. And your presence here, making this community what it is. And I want to leave enough time for us to be able to wish ourselves well and wish others well. So. Taking a moment to breathe in your own goodness. Your own potential for awakening, whatever that means to you. Maybe it's smiling to yourself. Maybe it's putting a hand on the heart. But really appreciating your sincere motivation in showing up here. And then so too, extending that out to everyone who is here tonight, that we didn't have to come into this hall and practice by ourselves. Wouldn't that have been different if we'd come in and sat here alone? So really sending your smile and your appreciation and your well wishes to everybody here. Of course, remembering to take in the fact that everyone's wishing you well. And then if there are particular groups of people or individuals or places on the planet that you want to call out loud so that we can collectively send our well-wishing there for a moment, um, please feel free to call those out and loudly enough so that everyone can hear. Where on the planet might we call out to wish well to? Who are those near and dear to us who need our love and friendliness tonight? You can call out their names.
So for all those that we named and all those also that we carry in our heart, knowing that it's impossible for us to do this practice by ourselves alone or for ourselves alone, we offer our good wishes to all those named and unnamed. May all beings have happiness and the causes for happiness. Peace and the causes for peace. And may all beings experience freedom in every needed form at this time and be supported by conditions for that freedom to increase and increase. May it be so. Thank you for your practice. Good to see you again.